Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Good evening to you and welcome. Um, first of all, my daughter's friends are used to calling me Mr. Fong and I'm a high school teacher, but I'm giving permission tonight, officially from this point on, folks, Cameron. All right, let's go with Cameron. My, uh, the old saying, my dad's Mr. Fong. But um, no, thank you for having me here tonight. And as a high school teacher too, um, you know, the instincts kick in. If your phone is out, I might call you up here and send you right off to the Student Discipline Center. So get ready. No, if I, if I fall into that mode, just Christian, I give you permission, slap me over the back of the head and I'll snap out of it and we'll keep going here, okay? So, yeah, thank you for um, welcoming me here tonight and thankful for Sam, too, and all of his hard work with this group and leading and teaching each week. Um, when he's not off gallivanting around Europe, he's doing a really good job here, so I... Uh, now he's. I texted him earlier this week and said, "Hey, how's everything going over there?" I've got nothing back, so I don't know if he's just like seeing the sights. Yeah, no, you know what? I have the. I think I don't have the new number, which was probably on purpose on his part. But um, yeah, I, I don't know how to get in touch with him. But I, I, I sent one over there just to see if he would reply, and I'm sure he's busy at work over there and, and taking care of business. So um, yeah, it really is. Uh, just, I'm so thankful that he's here and preaching each week and teaching and, and, um, and serving this group here. Um, that's the hard work. I mean, a lot of people can come in and kind of give their best 35, 40 minutes and, and, um, get out of here. But for Sam to be here week in, week out, preparing, preparing, preparing and, and meeting with you guys, I'm really thankful for his leadership here. And preparing for this week too, I was very blessed to go back and watch the, uh, messages from Stan and Jake as well over the last few weeks, just very encouraged by their teaching and preparation. What a blessing to have resources like that here at Trinity. It's one of the things I love about our church. You know, we walk in on a Sunday morning and we have the newborns, the babies. In fact, we had, I think the count was 18 newborns this year with three more on the way. So uh, we're expanding that direction as well. But But all age ranges and people with Gray hair and no hair as well. Dave Ramsey's uh, financial advice, talk to people with gray hair and no hair. But we have that in our church, and it's a, it's a wonderful blessing. We, we work with our newly married groups, too, and um, we're always kind of like, hey, you've got your pick of people who've been married 14 years and 27 years and 52 years, and you can get together with them and get some of their insight and wisdom. So um, we've been thankful to be here at Trinity now for 18 years, about 18 years, and Jamie and I met in college at UCLA, and we've been married now for 24 years. And in 2002, we moved from L.A. to Clovis. We had three of our daughters down there. And summer of 2002, um, we moved up here and, and um, enjoyed our time here, of course. And excited to be here tonight with this group. And excited for a couple of reasons. Our kids are actually your age. Our oldest daughter, Hannah, is 23, and... Living and working up in Davis, Northern California. Our second daughter, Avery, is 21, 
and finishing up college in the Bay Area. Our third daughter, Logan, is 20 and over on the East Coast in college, and then Kate is 18 and doing a little gap year Bible school program in Colorado with a healthy side of skiing and snowboarding. That's coming up soon, so she's having a blast over there. Um, But, you know, preparing for tonight, I thought often about what tonight's passage would mean not only for you guys, but for my daughters um, sitting here as well. And also excited because this time of life, this time of life, the college age year is such an important, meaningful time uh, of life, and certainly was for Jamie and me. Um, I grew up in a home where both of my parents were believers. They had met at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago in the 50s, and uh, my dad was a pastor for several years, so I prayed a prayer at a very young age, probably, I don't know, five-ish, somewhere around there, and stayed on the straight and narrow, involved with youth group and high school group and all that stuff, but it was college. College was really the watershed time in my life where all these things that I'd said I had believed, I really had to kind of grapple with that and think, okay, is it what I believe? Mom and dad had me go to church each week and involved with the youth group, but where am I really at with that? And God put me in a place where there were just people really pursuing their faith and wanting to grow in their faith. And that was a real encouragement to me. Before moving down to UCLA, I I, um, was going to move in with four guys. And one of them I had known since junior high, like summer camp, seventh grade, we, we first met. But the other three guys I didn't know. And one of them said, okay, before we move in together, uh, we're going to read some books in the summer. I want you guys to read some books. We'll have some stuff to talk about when we get down there. And the books they, uh, he, Wayland is the guy, just turned 50 yesterday? Yesterday. He turned 50. Wow. Okay. Um, and he said, we're going to read uh, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. We're going to read Putting Amazing Back into Grace by Michael Horton. And we're going to read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And I was kind of like, okay, I guess, I guess we'll read that this summer. And uh, we got down there, and it was just like, that kind of set the tone for the rest of my college career. Um, guys who were serious about their faith, who really wanted to push each other to grow. And then I remember even that first week, um, one of the guys, Eric Widman, he was out on our balcony, we were on the third floor, and he was sitting out on the balcony with his uh, Walkman and listening to a sermon on tape. Now, tape, boys and girls, this is a cassette you put in a little player. Anyway, uh, and he was listening to a sermon on tape. It was John MacArthur on Daniel. And I just remember thinking, <laughs> you're listen- in your free time, you're choosing to listen to a sermon on tape. Like That's the part of church that I would just have to endure when I was in junior high and high school and just couldn't wait for it to be over. And this guy in his free time is, is wanting to grow in his faith. And so that really was encouragement to me to be around um, guys like that. And, you know, in a, in a time when I just felt like free, I'm down there in Los Angeles and, you know, it dawned on me at one point, I can... I can eat ice cream for dinner tonight. No one's going to say anything. Like, this is incredible. And the first week down there, too, we, we were, there's this stretch called Bruin Walk where Megan knows what I'm talking about. You walk down Bruin Walk, and it's kind of the, you fan out to all your classes from there. You're not supposed to ride bikes in Bruin Walk. But at about 10, 30, 11 at night, we were racing down our bikes on this big hill. And I just had this, like, whoa, we can do whatever we want. It's like a Titanic moment there. I can do whatever I want out here. And... Um, Thankfully, God just really took a hold of my life in that setting, 
and kind of took me from I can do whatever I want to what I want to do is learn more about the Lord and grow in my faith. And so, so thankful for uh, that time in my life. And really, I hope that this is a time in your life, whatever situation you're in, college student or working or whatever you're pursuing right now, that this would be a time where you're understanding your faith, where you're asking tough questions, not not stuffing those away and thinking, well, I don't think anyone else here has those questions, so I'm just going to keep quiet. Let's ask the tough question. This is the time. And we have people here, great resources, that would love to engage in those conversations with you. So I, uh, as a dad of four college-aged young adults, that's my hope for you. This would be a, a time of great growth. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're headed tonight. Uh, the corruption and immorality that was mentioned in the prayer a minute ago, that's coming in chapter 5, so I don't know who has that next week, but um, chapter 4, we're going to be talking about the, as the title in some Bibles said, the ministry of the apostles, and we'll, we'll get to that in one sec. Those of you who've been here the first five weeks of this study in 1 Corinthians have heard the context for this fourth chapter that we'll be looking at tonight. Corinth was this place that was kind of this cosmopolitan trading center, a um, place of moral corruption and, and prostitution. They had the, the temple to Aphrodite there, the goddess of love. And Paul, with the help of Aquila and Priscilla, establishes the church there that includes even Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and his entire household. Paul leaves after a couple of years and Apollos of Alexandria becomes leader of the Corinthian church. There was disunity, there were loyalties to different factions that had developed, as was discussed in previous weeks, and and some in the church would not break fellowship with those who were committing gross sin while part of the church. And that's something that Paul goes on to warn them about in chapter 5. So tonight we're going to be taking a look at chapter 4. We're going to see that the Apostles' ministry that Paul describes is an example of the character and actions of a faithful minister. Character and actions of a faithful minister. In verses 1 through 5, we'll see that the faithful minister serves Christ. In verses 6 through 13, the faithful minister is humble. And in verses 14 through 21, we'll see that the faithful minister admonishes with care. Admonishes with care. So, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? 
What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with the rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would open our ears to hear. You would soften our hearts to what you have to say to us tonight, Lord. May your word speak powerfully into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor and theologian D.A. Carson wrote a book in 2008 about his father called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. Some of you may know of D.A. Carson, Don Carson. I'm guessing most, unless you've read the book, most have never heard of Tom Carson. He was born in 1911 and was a pastor in the Montreal area of Canada. The book is about his ministry and life and the impact an ordinary pastor, a faithful ordinary pastor, can have. And here's what Carson says in the introduction. Most pastors will not regularly preach to thousands, let alone tens of thousands. They will not write influential books. They will not supervise large staffs. And they will never see more than modest growth. They will plug away at their care for the aged, at their visitation, at their counseling, at their Bible studies and preaching. Some will work with so little support that they will prepare their own Sunday bulletins. Most of us, let us be frank, are ordinary pastors. Dad was one of them. This little book is a modest attempt to let the voice and ministry of one ordinary pastor be heard for such servants have much to teach us, end quote. So what might an ordinary pastor have from which we may learn? How can an ordinary pastor, a guy toiling away in some corner of the world somewhere, be an example to us? 
As D.A. Carson says, there's no famous legacy, there's no massive congregation, no radio show. How is he an example? He can be an example in his faithfulness. And in verses 1 through 5, we see what the faithful minister does. The faithful minister serves Christ. The faithful minister serves Christ. We'll go a little bit more in-depth in this first section and summarize the last two points. The reference to us in verse 1 refers to those he mentions previously in chapter 3. That's Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Peter, and by extension to all fellow workers. People both inside and outside the church should view ministers, and really anyone in Christian ministry, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, and says that ministers need to be found faithful. And the word servant here is not the word slave. It actually speaks of the under rower on a ship. So if you can picture those ancient ships with the oars coming out the side, um, they're the ones that are down there pulling those oars. And they're basically in the belly of the ship. They're doing the labor. They're under the leadership of the commander. And what Paul is saying here is that ministers are to be subordinates of Christ, serving him, following his leadership, answering Christ's call. The faithful minister has many responsibilities, but his most important priority is serving Christ. And how can a minister of the gospel serve Christ if he doesn't know who Christ really is, doesn't know what really honors Christ, doesn't know how Christ wants the person to serve him? And how does one know that? It's through understanding God's word, the Bible. To serve Christ is to, first of all, know him as he's described in God's divinely inspired book. So yes, serving Christ means caring for others. It means loving people. It might mean counseling others. But if the servant doesn't know what Jesus has said, doesn't know the instructions God gives, isn't clear on the wisdom God gives in his book, he can't really be an effective servant of Christ. Because what is he offering to people then? His own wisdom? And really, that's no wisdom at all. So the minister must be a servant of Christ first. And to do that, he must know Christ as he is revealed in God's word. So ministers are to be servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, the text says. A steward oversaw the affairs of the household of the one who entrusted it to him. Genesis 39, Potiphar appoints Joseph as the steward of his house or overseer. A steward manages, cares for, looks after what the master has given him. And what is the servant of Christ to manage, be a steward of? What does it say there? The mysteries of God. The word mystery here, mystery here is not the meaning we might think of as like a whodunit murder mystery. The mysteries of God are the things we cannot discover with our own human wisdom. They are God's secret or hidden wisdom, which can only be known by divine revelation. They're the mysteries of salvation that, praise God, he actually has revealed to us in his word. And it speaks of God's love, doesn't it? That he has revealed this mystery to mankind. And so the minister is a steward who is then to unfold, unpack the mysteries of God, all that God has given in Scripture. In Acts 20, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks 
of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Everything, the whole counsel of God. We know 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is profitable. It's all taught to be, it's all to be taught and understood. And the beautiful life-giving words and then the, the very difficult, hard-to-reconcile words. The minister is to proclaim it all. And it's required, verse 2 continues, absolutely necessary that stewards of the mysteries of God are faithful. New American Standard uses the word trustworthy. In Paul's time, stewards were not often closely supervised. And so they were trusted with carefully and faithfully managing what they had been given, even when no one was watching. I was talking with a friend recently, he has a job in maintenance, where there's really no oversight. Uh, tasks pop up on his phone. He's supposed to go to different apartments and fix stuff that needs to be fixed. No boss looking over his shoulder, no manager. And the kicker here is he's not paid by the job, but by the hour. So maybe that light bulb that needs to be changed takes uh, two and a half hours or so. And $45 later, he's got his job done. His boss is expecting him to be a faithful, trustworthy person. The minister is to be a servant of Christ and faithful steward of the mysteries of God. And it's really all that the servant of Christ can do, isn't it? Be faithful. God supplies the wisdom. God supplies the words, the power, the transformation. What can the steward do but be faithful? And even that is a gift from God. One commentator sums it up this way. The work is demanding, but is basically simple. Taking God's word and feeding it faithfully to his people. Dispensing the mysteries of God. Proclaiming the hidden truths he has made known. There is to be no glory here, ranking one above the other. The best that any minister can be is faithful, which is just fulfilling the basic requirement. So it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Verses 3 to 5, Paul makes the point that examination, evaluation, judgment by anyone other than God is of little value. God's the one who rightly judges. God's the one who will finally judge the minister. So what he says there, it's not basically a appointed um, statement about the Corinthian church's judgment of him. It's about any human's judgment of his ministry, including his own. Remember, he is to be a servant of Christ, a steward of whose mysteries? God's mysteries. It's faithfulness to that call that is most important. It's commendation from God that means everything. Because in the end, the Lord, verse 5, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Now, does that mean ministers are to, out of hand, discard all input from people? Anyone that tries to criticize them, they, no, I'm not going to listen to this. I don't care what you think. I'm not trying to serve you. I'm just serving the Lord here. No, of course not. He's not saying tune everyone out and just blast away. doesn't matter what anyone says. No, scripture is filled with warnings and encouragement to consider input 
to seek godly counsel, give and receive rebuke. He's just saying that ultimately the minister must be concerned with God's judgment, with God's evaluation. Other people are fallible sinners. Paul is a fallible sinner. Only the Lord will judge rightly. I was listening to a podcast recently where John Piper was talking about preaching and criticism from others. And after he talked about not dismissing criticism, being open to it, he said, ultimately, it's not the person's opinion that is most important. Quote, even if the criticism is true, God does things with sermons, imperfect C-minus sermons that are life-changing, he says. And you can just accept that and not think it was a wasted sermon. You don't know. You'll never know whether that was wasted, and you ought to assume it wasn't. The word will never come back void, unquote. And that's a promise from God. God will judge rightly, and when he does, he will, verse 5, bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. What should the purpose of our heart be? What should the motive of our life be? Paul says it in chapter 10, later in the book, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So God's judgment, God's evaluation of a minister is what really matters. The faithful minister serves Christ. The faithful minister is also humble. In verses 6 through 13, we see that the faithful minister is also humble. We get verse 6 to 8, Paul highlights the Corinthians' arrogance. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. When he says, I have applied these things, he's referring to what he said in chapter 3. We heard from Stan last time about being farmers who just plant and water and builders. And then what we talked about in chapter 4 earlier here about being servant stewards. He's saying, that's what we've tried to do. Be faithful. Know that it's God who does the work. And I want you to remember that too, Corinthians. God brings the growth. Don't exalt someone to a point that is beyond scripture to where you're arrogant and taking sides and causing division within God's people. And in verse 7, he uses three rhetorical questions, starting with, for who sees anything different in you? He's saying, why would you think that you or your group is better than anyone else? And the second, what do you have that you did not receive? And then the third, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You know that saying, maybe the, you've heard it before, the baseball analogy that's along these same lines. When speaking of someone who was given advantages in life, the guy was born on second base, but what? But he thinks he hit a double. He was born on second base, but he thinks he hit a double. He was, he was there already, and he thinks he did all the work to get there, when no, he, he was given all of the advantages ahead of time. One commentator says this, quote, if we have a good pastor, God gave him to us. If we have good parents, God gave them to us. If we live in a good country, God gave it to us. If we have a good mind or creative talent, God gave it to us. We have no reason to boast 
either in people or possessions. Not only ministers, but all Christians are but God's stewards. Everything we have is on loan from the Lord, entrusted to us for a while to use in serving him. End quote. So Paul tells the Corinthians, there's no boasting in yourselves. How could you boast? You didn't produce any of this. It's from God. And the portion is capped off in verse 8 when he says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul uses sarcasm to point out to them just how conceited they were. Yes, you've already made it to the top and you've done it without us. And Paul then says that he wishes they actually had reached that position because then he and others would benefit from their progress in the faith. And then verses 9 through 13, Paul points out the irony of the situation. The Corinthians are are trying to reign while their spiritual fathers, their examples, are far from reigning. And he draws these contrasts. You Corinthians, you're up here, you think you're up here, and we apostles are actually down here. We're a spectacle that people tune into to ridicule. We're considered foolish and weak and without honor. We're at the bottom of the ladder. But verse 12, still, we work, we labor, we keep moving forward. When we're insulted, we offer blessing. When persecuted, we endure. When people lie about us, we continue to offer the gospel. D.A. Carson, in that book, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, he writes about how his father would send New Testaments to people in and around Montreal, then follow up with an in-person visit in these areas that were predominantly Catholic. And D.A. Carson writes, Montreal is a spread-out city, and in those days, Tom had no car. He resorted to public transport and bicycle. This was Tom's way of trying to get Bible studies going. A letter dated January 9th, 1947, illustrates the perennial challenge of the day. And a woman writes to Tom Carson here, I am writing to tell you to no longer send anything to me because we pay little attention to your gospeling. Your letters will not stop us from seeing our priests. You don't amount to anything in comparison with the church. You are only capable of sending out letters. You know that our priests are more elevated than you people are, and you will never be able to weaken them because this is the true religion. And besides, I am enclosing examples to show you what we do with your letters. And she enclosed in the envelope torn up bits of Tom's letters. And if I ever run into my cousin who had apparently asked Tom to write to this family, I assure you I'll tear a strip off her. And it's signed, one who believes in the church and its priesthood and in the true Catholic religion. D.A. Carson writes, it was always a challenge for Tom to know how to respond courteously yet firmly while helping people to see that eternal issues were involved. And this is Tom's reply. 15th of January, 1947. Dear Miss M, I have received your letters of 9th of January advising me that you no longer to wish to receive our literature. We shall respect your request and you will receive nothing further. 
Apparently, you've not found it helpful to read the Gospels and the writings of the Apostles Paul, Peter, and John, together with the letters of Jude and James, all of which are contained in the book often called simply the Gospel or the New Testament. Our sole goal is to persuade people to test by this Gospel book the statements of those who claim to mediate the Word of God to us, rather than to test the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and of his Apostles by the words of others, whether of your priests or of us. As for ourselves, gospel Christians, we have nothing to fear from such a test. This step you are unwilling to take. On the last day, it will not be our words or our pamphlets that will judge you. Jesus himself has said, whoever rejects me and does not receive my words has what will condemn him, the word that I have spoken. This is what will condemn you on the last day, from John twelve forty eight, And then listen to this. May God give you grace and open your eyes before it is too late. For understand this, the only Savior is Jesus. He wants your whole heart without reserve. May the peace of the Lord Jesus, who shed his precious blood to grant this peace, be truly on you. He signs that your devoted friend, Tom Carson. Did you hear that there? May God give you grace. The only Savior is Jesus. May the peace of Jesus be truly with you. When the minister is reviled, he blesses. When he's persecuted, he endures. When slandered, he entreats. He keeps asking. He's holding out hope. And back in our text, verse 13, he says, We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. There are a couple words at the end of that verse that describe dirt that is removed by thorough cleansing or by scraping. Can you picture that? So ministers are like the the dirt that's caked on. That's how much the world despises them. What a contrast to the proud and haughty Corinthians. 2 Timothy 3, 12-15, Paul tells Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. He tells him to the world, Timothy, we're scum, but keep on living this godly life. Keep on teaching the truth and hope of Jesus Christ. Isn't that such a powerful, God-like thing to do? Chuck spoke on the parable of the wedding feast a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 22, the king continually offering the invitation, even as people revile him. And that's what the minister is to do as well. So the faithful minister then is a servant of Christ. The faithful minister is humble. And third, the faithful minister admonishes with care. Verses 14 to 21. In this passage, Paul's tone shifts. Remember, this is a, a letter to the church at Corinth. You get a much warmer sense in this section. The biting sarcasm from that previous portion, it gives way to what he says to them, my beloved children. I need to warn you. I'm admonishing you. This is part of the role of the faithful minister. I'm your spiritual father. I want you to follow what I'm doing. In fact, I'm sending Timothy another one of my spiritual children, to help you, he says in verse 17. 
That's what the faithful minister does. I've discipled this man. He's matured to the point where I can send him to you to help discipline you in my place. What a testimony even that was. Paul has actually raised up a spiritual son who is mature enough that Paul can send him in his place to help the Corinthians. And in verses 18 to 21, he knows that faithfully ministering means disciplining at times. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He's ready to call their bluff. You guys are puffed up, saying what you want to say because you don't think I'm coming there. Well, Lord willing, I'll be there. And if he's able to go, he says, we'll find out just how powerful these arrogant, puffed up people are. Talk is cheap. We're going to find out firsthand. But what's very revealing here is that this portion doesn't end on that note with his fist pounding his hand. We'll find out firsthand. No, it concludes with him in this very fatherly way, giving them a choice. I can come to you with chastisement, with harsh rebuke, and defiant pride might need that sort of approach, but I could come with love in a spirit of gentleness. A loving spiritual father would rather that they soften, that they receive him favorably. And Paul says if that's the case, his words will be love wrapped in gentleness. So it ends with this offer of love, something a faithful minister offers even to those who have been disappointing to him. Faithful minister, then, is a servant of Christ. He's humble, and he admonishes with care. Now, Cameron, you're right. I hope my pastor is a servant of Christ. I hope my pastor is humble, and I hope he admonishes with care. I know you might not hold the role of official minister in a church, but should the believer be anything less than a servant of Christ, the one who bore your sins and the one by whom you are granted eternal life? Should the believer not be humble but be proud? We know humility marks the life of Jesus, as it says in Philippians 2. Should the believer just let other brothers and sisters progress in sin without lovingly admonishing with care? No, we must love each other. Enough to, after examining our own hearts, warn our brothers and sisters about sin in their life. So the character and actions that the faithful minister is to display are the same character and actions that each believer is to display as well. It's for you and me. Tonight, maybe you're college student, working, future's cloudy. Maybe you know exactly what you want to do, where you want to be in five years. Whatever is happening in your life, are you a servant of Christ first? Can you commit to being a servant of Christ? Whatever job, profession you're in, office environment, volunteering in a hospital, whatever you're doing, Servant of Christ, know him, know God's word. Commit that whatever you're doing, you're doing it to serve Christ. I pray that this window of time in your life is one in which your devotion to God grows. Yes, theology, vitally important. Yes, we want to grapple with the difficult doctrines. 
But as you grow in those areas, I pray that your love and gratitude for God grows. And that results in a greater grace toward other people. Yes, we want to be right, but when we understand what God has done for us, it ought to bring humility and a greater devotion to God. Knowing the doctrine is not the end goal. Knowing God, knowing your creator, is the end goal. Pray for our pastors and leaders and teachers in our church. The challenges, they grow greater with each passing year. Pray that they would be faithful servants of Christ. And if you're here tonight, haven't trusted in what Jesus Christ has done for you, now's the time. He lived the perfect life we can't live, but took on the punishment we deserve for our sins. And then he resurrected, came back from the dead in victory over sin and death. The world's philosophies, okay, what your professors are telling you, what you're seeing on social media, the stuff your coworkers say, uh, those are false promises, folks. They're going to leave you frustrated. They're going to leave you empty, beaten down. True life and real hope are found in a life that is given to Jesus. Talk to one of our staff here tonight. Jamie and I would love to talk to you. Let's hash it out. This is the most important matter of life. We'll end with this. Tomorrow, October 26th, will mark exactly 30 years since Tom Carson died in 1992. His wife Marge had died of Alzheimer's disease three years before. D.A. Carson was at the hospital as his father, Tom, was in a coma but was assured by the nurses that he was stable. So he went to his father's house, who lived just five minutes away, to get cleaned up. By the time he got to the house, the phone call came from the hospital, just less than five minutes. Tom had died. D.A. Carson ends the book with a tribute to his father, who indeed had proved to be, by the grace of God, a faithful minister. Quote, Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people in western Quebec and beyond testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator, but there is no text that says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you are good administrators. His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition, but his children and grandchildren remember his laughter. He much preferred to avoid controversy than to stir things up, but his own commitments to historic confessionalism were unyielding. And in ethics, he was a man of principle. He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer lists. And for all the Facebook and Twitter warriors out there, can we think of that for a second? He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer lists. When he died, there were no crowds at the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no attention paid by the nation. 
In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting, because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad had won entrance to the only throne room that matters. Not because he was a good man or a great man. He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor. But because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. End quote. Though the faithful minister labors often with little fanfare in the world, often with much opposition, rest and joy in God's presence await in the world to come. And Father, may we all be characterized by faithful, humble service to Christ, knowing that any progress in that pursuit is a gift from you. We want to do this all for your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Until he returns... May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.